I hope you have a sheet. Um, I am going to kind of cook through this sheet of notes that I hope will be helpful, and so I'm just going to dig right into it. Uh, first is uh, I've got an outline there that's going to kind of be the flow of our time together. You can see there the Holy Spirit, the believer, and spiritual gifts. I have some general statements about the Holy Spirit and its work. And uh, then uh, uh, some views about spiritual gifts, where we'll get into the thick of it a little bit, maybe a little bit of, uh, of, of what in at least general theological camps is, is areas of some uh, difference and maybe even controversy. And then we'll end with, uh, on the back there, some encouragements for us as members of Crosspoint. So let me pray and we'll get into it. Lord, thank you for... Again, for the Lord's Day, for your people that are here this evening, for the scriptures, for the Holy Spirit, for our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you asking you to show us wonderful things from your word, make our statements measured, my statements measured and true. If there's anything that I say that's not right, may it fall to the ground, but whatever's true and noble and good, may it stick fast to our hearts and make us more like Christ in these days. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, first here, I just want to make some broad statements about the Holy Spirit and, uh, and, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit or salvation, which I think is what that means, and then uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and then spiritual gifts. So uh, first, uh, this is, I think, critical to uh, what I think is a biblical understanding of spiritual gifts, is that I want to say, first of all, that when the Bible speaks about baptism... Not only water baptism, but also spirit baptism. I think it is primarily referring to the new birth, okay? And we're going to talk a little bit about different things that Pentecostals and Charismatics believe about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But I think that, uh, first of all, when we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit or spiritual gifts, we want to think about salvation. And so I want to just read a couple of scriptures for you. 1 Corinthians 12 verses 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 13, this is the important one. For in one Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Then there's this beautiful, so we're baptized, we're, 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 we're made new in Christ, we get this new nature, we're, we're, we go down into the waters and up out of the waters, spiritually speaking, and even in a symbol of baptism, and we are born again. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, he says that for as many of, of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So what it means to be baptized means to be born again, to be put into Christ. And then we talked about this a couple weeks ago in regards to water baptism, but I think that water baptism and spirit baptism in a sense go together. In fact, water baptism is meant to be the sign of spirit baptism and spirit baptism is just another way to talk about salvation or being regenerated, or being born again. Okay, so Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And so a question sometimes arises, 
about Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, is Paul talking about baptism by the Spirit, meaning salvation there, or is he talking about baptism by water? And I would say that I think he's speaking of both, because in the New Testament, those two things are not one and the same. You know that you're born again, and then sequentially later on, that's marked by your water baptism, but they're kind of joined together in the language of the New Testament. One signifies the other. So, The Holy Spirit baptizes us into Christ, and I take that as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, although we're going to look at some some nuance to that phrase in a little bit. Secondly, we are indwelt by the Spirit, so uh, every believer that is born again has the Spirit of God dwelling in them. In fact, that is what it means in many ways to be a Christian. Paul, in Romans chapter 8, verses 9, 10, and 11, says, you, however are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So praise God. That's a wonderful verse. I mean, it's hard to just read that and not just go on a million different rabbit trails of theological implications in the life of a Christian. But suffice it to say for this moment that that means that if you're a believer in Jesus, not only have you been put into Christ by the Holy Spirit, made alive, he takes up residence in your heart, and the third person of the triune God dwells in you. Praise God. I mean, just that means that we, there is no just ordinary people here. We, we are all image bearers of God by nature, by birth, but we've been made new, and Christ, the Spirit of Christ, dwells in us. That's glorious news. And then, let her see there, every believer has spiritual gifts, has a spiritual gift. So there's three lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. First is found in 1 Corinthians, well, it's not first, but one of the more primary ones is 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 11. These are nine spiritual gifts that are not an exhaustive list, but nine spiritual gifts that were active in the New Testament first century church. And Paul is trying to regulate the abuse of these gifts in the life of the Corinthian church. And he says, uh, chapter 12, verse 4, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities. But it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given, so there's the key phrase, to all of us, some of us, uh, to all of us, something is given. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So I take that to mean that every Christian has some sort of spiritual gift. And the list that Paul is about to give here is not an exhaustive list. So don't try and say, well, which, which of these do I have? That's not the point of this passage. For to one is given the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by by one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So the point I'm trying to make there is that every born-again Christian has been given gifts by the Lord for the building up of the body. We read in Romans chapter 12, another list of gifts. He says, for by grace, for by the grace given to me, verse 3, 
I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And he lists some gifts there, prophecy, uh, service, teaching, exhortation, generosity, leadership, uh, mercy. And the point there being, again, that I'm trying to make is that every believer has spiritual gifts, has a spiritual gift. Again, not exhaustive, maybe not mentioned in that list, but does have a gift. And then there are some gifts of people or offices that are mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And Paul says, and he gave, meaning the Lord, I think specifically in this case, the Son, he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So in this case, the gifts that are given by the Lord are not individual gifts for an individual person, but they are offices in the church, functions in the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And we'll talk a little bit more about apostles and prophets and whether or not they are still a gift that continues in a moment. So every believer has a spiritual gift. In fact, Peter concludes uh, in 1 Peter 4, verse 10. This is a wonderful exhortation that I think Samantha just really prayed along these lines. 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So the point I'm wanting to make is that the Spirit baptizes us into Christ, that salvation. The Spirit indwells us, that is the beginning of the life of a Christian and continues through the Christian life. And the Spirit gifts or the Lord, however you want to say that, the triune God gives us gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. That's just a kind of general overview about spiritual gifts. Now let's whittle down into Roman numeral number two there, the two differing major camps about spiritual gifts. There are those that would believe that the gifts continue till today and still are in operation, and that's a broad category. I, 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 that would be kind of classified as continuationism. That's a kind of fancy word, and you can understand the origin of that word, those that believe that the gifts continue. That's why it's called continuationism. We would also group in that, what you, another word that you might have heard is charismatics, and when you hear somebody be referred to theologically as a charismatic, it, it's not referring to the pizzazz of their personality. It's, it's, it's talking about the Greek word charis, which means gift, so those that believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still in operation today, and also sometimes you might use the word Pentecostals, uh, and that is a kind of subset of a broader term of charismatics that would believe uh, in all of the gifts in operation, but we're going to talk about a little bit of a distinction when we use the word Pentecostals, and that would come from the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church and we saw gifts in particular, the gift of tongues in operation there, and Pentecostals are a particular group of charismatics that put a lot of emphasis on uh, speaking in tongues, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But the point is, is that this, I'm going to put it all under this one umbrella of continuationism. Believers, earnest, 
Jesus-loving believers that would say that the gifts continue until today. Again, this is a very broad overview, but support offered for this view is they would say that the Bible does not explicitly say that the gifts have ceased. And I would say that 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 is true. Uh, I don't think that we can point to chapter and verse where there's a, a verse that just nails it airtight. So that, that, that I think is support that is understandably offered for this view. Another would be uh, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, which is in the middle of Paul's exhortation and instruction to the Corinthian church about using their gifts, especially in chapter 14. But sometimes this verse is offered, uh, and let me just read a little bit of context. Paul's talking about, um, about the abuse of spiritual gifts in the Corinthian church, and he's making the point that if these things are not done in love, they're of no use. In fact, he says in verse 3, if I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And then he goes into this beautiful passage that we often read in weddings, which I think is a fine thing to do, but just be noted that that's really not the context of this passage. So if that was read at your wedding, don't be upset. You know, don't throw. I'm just, I'm just saying Paul's not talking necessarily about marital love there. He's talking about, a, I think it's a fine thing. I think it might even be read at my wedding. I think I've read it at weddings. I'm just, I'm just saying context is everything. And verse 8, love never ends as far as prophecies they will pass away as far as tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So at least he's mentioning three, uh, for, for three spiritual gifts um, are, are going to end. When does that happen? For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And there's been much debate about what the perfect means. Some people that believe that the gifts cease believe that the perfection refers to the completion of the Bible. I don't think that's a good understanding of the verse. But others think that it means that when Jesus comes again, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So these things uh, that are, are, are partial in their operation, meaning these gifts, when Jesus comes back a second time, um, that there will be no more need for these things. And that, that is offered from a charismatic, continuationist, Pentecostal point of view as a verse that points us maybe in the direction that these things will continue until that which is perfect, which is Jesus has come. Fourthly, the, many people would say, well, this has just been the experience of many believers um, in, uh, throughout the history of the church, especially in the past 100 years or so, and um, I'll get into that in just a moment. And then other uh, support offered for this view is, uh, I think, just uh, an earnest. This is not really a biblical thing. I think it's more driven by a person's personality, but I'm not going to discount it. Um, I think there's value in this on some level. It is just a real earnest desire. People look at the Bible and they say, God's powerful. He uses people. And there's just this earnest desire for more of God's power for life and witness. And um, I think that is an understandable impulse um, in the continuationist camp. Now, what, is, what, what do Pentecostals, a lot of times you maybe have, I came from, I came to faith in a Pentecostal church and spent a long time in the Pentecostal world. I was a Pentecostal pastor before we planted this church. And so uh, sometimes we'll hear a particular subset of those that would believe in the continuation of the gifts or just the charismatic gifts in general, 
be referred to as Pentecostals, and that's a particular um, a group of charismatics or continuationists that in particular put an emphasis on tongues and the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a second evidence of grace after salvation, okay? Now, sometimes Pentecostals get the wrong label that they believe that you must speak in tongues in order to be born again. That's not true of the vast majority of Pentecostals, okay? Just good, run-of-the-mill, God-loving, Jesus-loving, gospel-loving Pentecostals do not believe that. There may be some, and if they believe that, that's not Christianity, that's heresy. Because to add anything to the work of Christ for salvation is heretical. It would be the same as adding water baptism to as necessary for salvation or circumcision. You know, that's Paul's point of writing Galatians or like what the Roman Catholics do, how they add these works. Those things, they, they undermine the gospel. That's not what the vast majority of Pentecostals believe. But they do believe that we should seek a second experience after salvation and that that second experience is given to empower us for life and witness, and it is evidenced or authenticated by speaking in tongues. Why do they believe that? Well, that came about towards the end of that doctrine of this second experience of grace and really the rise in the denominations that we see in Pentecostalism came about during the 1800s and late 1800s, during the American kind of pioneer days, uh, and we saw just the history of American Christianity is really fascinating. You see English Puritanism coming over and really as being the a major force of establishing the colonies. And uh, I don't have time to get into the church history of the United States, but we do see some watering down and some losing in some ways and some uh, just as, as the nation began to form the weakening of the church, and as the church began to move into the south and out west, uh, there was a real uh, lamenting of the, uh, of the coldness of much of the religion in the United States. And so as a wonderful just move of the Spirit, there were people that wanted to just get back to holiness and so uh, there was kind of a revival in the Methodist churches, a kind of holiness desire that, that started some of these camp meeting movements in the mid-1800s, which gave rise to some real earnest, zealous, godly people that were concerned about the degradation of American culture and life in many ways. This is the mid-1800s. Doesn't this sound familiar? That were wanting all that God would have and went, you know, would have camp meetings and would see salvation. And praise God, I mean, wonderful things happened in those, in those times. But as that progressed uh, and, and as there was more of an emphasis on experience, there were, um, there were people that came out of that movement, leaders, theologians, and in particular, p- different movements. And in the late 1800s, there was a few Bible colleges and things that popped up, and there was some revivals that happened in places like Topeka, Kansas, and Azusa, California, outside of Los Angeles. And what was happening was this real desire to just get back to a kind of New Testament, raw Christian zeal and faith, which of course is a wonderful thing. Praise God for that. They looked at the Bible, and they started to see in the book of Acts 
they saw in the narrative of the movement of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, this group of people that became sort of the first Pentecostals or denominational Pentecostals in the United States saw a pattern in the book of Acts that developed into this doctrine that now says that tongues is the necessary evidence of the second experience of grace. And where do they get that? Well, they, they, they looked at the book of Acts and they saw this pattern where there seemed to be tongues following this experience that Luke in the book of Acts calls the baptism of the Holy Spirit in various ways. So let me read. So in Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit falling. This is the day of Pentecost. This is Jewish, all Jewish believers. This is all ethnic Jews, all of the followers of Jesus. They're waiting in the upper room just as Jesus encouraged them to do. And we see verse 1, chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost, that's an Old Testament feast. That's where the phrase Pentecostals comes from. The feast of the harvest arrived about 50 days after uh, uh, the resurrection of Jesus. They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, what were these other tongues? Well, Luke explains for us. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So these were ethnic Jews who had come back to the capital Jerusalem for the Feast of, for the feast of Pentecost. But they were people that were dispersed because of the Babylonian and the Syrian captivity. They were taken off. And so they were coming back. Although they were ethnic Jews, they spoke all of these other languages. Okay, And at that sound, verse 6, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing him speak in his own language. So it, a kind of strange, you know, like I, maybe somebody that might have, have, you know, had ethnic, you might be Spanish a couple generations back and you're returning to Spain for some feast. You don't speak Spanish, but you speak English. You know? That's the same thing that's going on with these Jews. They don't speak Hebrew maybe very well. They speak all these other languages, and they're hearing, preaching, or speaking these Jewish apostles and followers speaking in all of these languages. And at the sound of the multitude came, they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, and they were amazed and astonished and said, are not all these who speak in Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own language? And it goes on the list. And so that's what happened. So what's happening in tongues in Acts chapter 2 is these Jewish believers receive this gift and they're speaking the oracles and wonders of God in known human languages to the other people as a witness of the gospel to them in their own language. Okay? So we see tongues there. That's all Jewish believers. That's important to note. Now in Acts chapter 8, we see again a similar kind of pattern. Okay, Acts chapter 8, verse 14, the gospel is now going out. And when the apostles at Jerusalem heard, Acts chapter 8, verse 14, that Samaria had received the word of God. Okay, now, now remember, the history between the Jews and Samaritans is hostile. And the Jews would not have wanted to interface or certainly evangelize the Samaritans. But the gospel seems to be moving from the ethnic Jews to the Samaritans. Now, when the apostles... The Jewish apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. I mean, that would have been controversial. They sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus 
Then when they laid hands, verse 17, on them, they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered the money. Now tongues is not mentioned here, but how did Simon know that they had received the Spirit? The implication is, is that they likely were speaking in tongues, a sort of repeat of the experience in Acts chapter 2. And Simon goes on, he says, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Spirit. And Peter said to him, May your silver and gold perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Okay, so, but the point here is that these Samaritans, these non-ethnic Jews, these half-breed people that the Jews hated, the Spirit falls on them, they receive Christ, and it's evidenced by speaking in tongues. At least that's the implication. And then in Acts chapter 10, we see a similar thing happen. The Cornelius, the Gentile uh, leader, receives the gospel from Peter. Acts chapter 10, verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So that's important. So the believers from among the circumcised, in other words, the Jewish believers were amazed because the gospel was being poured out on these Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Spirit just as we have. In other words, God's obviously moving on these Gentiles just as he has on us Jews. That's what's going on in Acts chapter 10. We have this reception of the Holy Spirit. We have tongues. And then in Acts chapter 19, we see this pattern continue. We see the Ephesian or these Greek Christians that Paul brings the gospel. And while it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John's baptized with with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began to speak in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And so, in the early days of Pentecostalism and the frontier, camp meetings in mid to late 1800s in America, some people, groups started to form around what they saw as this pattern in Acts where you see the Holy Spirit falling on these people, and they're speaking in tongues, And they concluded from this, this is very important, this is why we have Pentecostal denominations, because of this assessment of what's going on here in Acts, is that there is obviously salvation, that's by faith in Christ alone, but there's this seeming second experience where the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes, and it's evidenced by speaking in tongues. Therefore, their conclusion was, we should seek this empowerment as well. We should seek this gift as well. We should seek this baptism. And that's what formed Pentecostalism. Now, I am about to critique that understanding, um, but let me just stop there and just say that, let me just, at this point, just say that's how that doctrine arose. A couple positive aspects of this, I think, is of just Pentecostals, charismatics, or continuationists in general, is I think they have a real earnest zeal. They want to see uh, the Lord move, and of course we all do. And I think we need to say that they just have a real relational warmth in their worship and in their relationship with the Lord. I do think that sometimes this is maybe more personality or type-driven, but I don't want to negate it. I think it is a, certainly a positive of a certain um, slivers of 
of the charismatic camp. Although it certainly can uh, uh, drift into a negative aspect, I want to speak positively and say that there is that is to be commended in many aspects. Some negative aspects of, of continuationist camps, charismatics, Pentecostals, is that it can be very quite secular. Um, almost elitist in, in their view of other Christians. In fact, when I was in the Pentecostal, there was a kind of world, there was a kind of implicit sort of bias or kind of looking down the end of your nose at other people who didn't have the full gospel or the gifts. And, and that's, a, that's a real problem. And oh, by the way, oh, by the way, people in the Reformed world can certainly fall into this very same camp. So sectarianism and kind of elitism and just sort of theological snobbiness whether you're right or wrong, is something that invades all of us, right? And that's just a terrible place to be. So it's easy to see it in other people. It's a lot harder to see it in yourself. But every sort of group has it, right? Um, a negative aspect, I would say, too, is emotionalism. Um, I think that, again, this is just my pastoral, a humble observation, having spent a lot of time in both sort of slivers or streams of the church, is that oftentimes people that are drawn to uh, charismatic, Pentecostal, continuationist believing churches are people that are driven uh, maybe a little bit more by their emotions, and that emotions are a wonderful thing, but people that are sometimes a little bit more driven by them tend to, tend to um, be attracted to these type of churches. And then um, along with that, I think a, a potential negative aspect that is just a desire for experience that undermines the place of Scripture and I think that's the real, real weakness of the modern-day charismatic Pentecostal continuationist camp is that unwittingly it, it takes um, a very intangible spiritual experience and it, it's unwittingly and maybe even subconsciously replaces the authority of Scripture in the life of a Christian, and I think that ends up being a really, a really bad thing. I'll talk about that more in a second. Um, so that's just kind of the continuationist view. Uh, the second view would be that, that what would be called cessationism, or people that would believe that the gifts have ceased. And I'll put my cards on the table. I am a, I've become over the years what I would classify as a nuanced cessationist, and I'll explain that more later. What are some biblical reasons for this? Well, uh, first would be a seeming pattern that we see that the gifts and miracles play a unique role in biblical history. And that role of miracles or miraculous things is to authenticate, to validate the, the uh, authenticity of a prophet or Christ himself or the apostles. So we see Moses, God telling him, hey, I'm going to speak through you, and I'm going, to, I'm going to have signs and wonders come through your name. And obviously we see that in the plagues. We see this also in the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. We see this in Jesus' ministry, that much of what Jesus does in his ministry, his healing, is for the sake of displaying and showing the Jews his sonship. It's not just merely for the sake of healing, it's for the sake of displaying and authenticating who he was. And then we see, and I think this is then getting into our time, is we see in the New Testament the, uh, the role of the gifts in the life of the New Testament. And what I would say is that these two verses, Acts 14.3 and Hebrews 2, uh, point us to the role of the gifts in the New Testament, and they were given 
along this cessationist line of thinking to authenticate, validate, and prove the authority of the apostles. And let me show you Acts chapter 14, verse 3. It says, so they remain, this is Paul and Barnabas, apostles, so they remain for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So again, we see this connection between signs and wonders and the apostles. And then Hebrews chapter 2, I'll start reading in verse 1, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared, meaning the gospel, by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It, meaning the gospel, the message of the apostles, was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, meaning the apostles, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And so there's this pattern that we see, according to Hebrews and Acts, that these gifts were clustered around Jesus and the apostles for the purpose of attesting, bearing witness to the ministry of the apostles. And what was the ministry of the apostles? To deliver the word now that suffices, that is sufficient in the life of a Christian, and the miracles thus are no longer necessary as a kind of regular normative thing that we see in the life of the church. And that's what the apostles, that's what the apostles were to do, was to, was to write the word and, and give the message of the gospel. And then we see uh, another, on the second page there, a letter B, um, another uh, reason uh, that would be put forward for this view is the foundational role of the New Testament apostles and prophets. So Ephesians chapter 2, let me start reading in verse, say, 19. So you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets... Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so the gifts are surrounding the ministry of the apostles, authenticating them, prophets, which are the New Testament prophets, not the Old Testament prophets. And what's the difference between New Testament prophecy and Old Testament prophecy? Uh, Biblically, I don't think there really is a difference. I think that New Testament prophets were a kind of intermediary office until the Bible was written, and they were ministering the gospel, ministering teaching, and those are foundations, their role, which is authenticated, follow the logic, their role, which is authenticated by the gifts, is a foundation stone that is set, and you don't lay the foundation more than once. And so that's been set, and so their function is no longer necessary, therefore the gifts as we see them in the New Testament, are no longer normative in the life of the church. This would be the argument here. C, the next uh, thing put forward would be, again, this isn't scriptural, but I think there is some validity to it. It's just a testimony of church history. We do see uh, not a complete, uh, not a complete uh, you know, no miracles at all it, through testimony, but we do see 
uh, in the testimony of church history, a cluster of miracles and signs and wonders and gifts in the first century, and then after the apostles, a significant decrease in them. And then, I would say then, and all of this is leading up to what I would say is the primary role of the Bible in the life of the church and the Christian, which has been complete, which I think Peter is speaking of in the future when he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own excellence and glory, glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So I think Peter is speaking eventually of what will become the Bible. We have these very great and precious promises, and they are sufficient for life and godliness. And so these are the major reasons put forward for cessationism. My personal view, and then let me give you a few encouragements and then any questions that you may have. Um, Again, it's been a bit of a development over the years. I just came to faith through the witness of my brother in an Assembly of God church back home in California in 1989. I heard the gospel. I repented. I believed. After a few meetings at that church, some old guys, deacons at the church or whatever they were, took me upstairs to this upper room, this prayer room, to help me try and acquire the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and they and and I'm just I'm not being silly. I'm just telling you, it was it was spiritual. These guys loved me. And they had my best interests in heart, and it was very persuasive and unintentionally manipulative. And that was the first time that I what I would consider spoken tongues. Although now looking back on it, I do not think it was truly the biblical gift of speaking in tongues that we see in the New Testament. It was me just trying to give these older brothers what they wanted from me in the moment. Just, uh, man, this is what I'm supposed to do. And so I just kind of started to do something just to kind of go along with it. And that's what my experience was. And then I found myself at West Point in a wonderful little Pentecostal Assembly of God Church right outside the gates of West Point in Highland Falls, New York. It was a wonderful time. They loved the Lord. Um, I came here in the Army, uh, went to a Pentecostal church, uh, found a Pentecostal girl, married her, and became a Pentecostal pastor. And then my theology started to change, and um, from that Pentecostal church, planted this church, which became a Reformed Baptist church. Now, that doesn't happen every day. But, um, but over the years, I have began to see uh, what I think, and I would side with a more cessationist understanding of the gifts. And where I say nuanced cessationism is that I certainly, when we say cessationism, we do not believe I do not believe that God doesn't still work miraculously or that God couldn't do all of the things that he says that clearly did happen in the New Testament. It just seems to me that the role of the gifts in the New Testament has ended and that they are not normative in the life of the church anymore because there's no necessary authentication. There's no more ministry of the apostles. All of the apostles are dead And so, therefore, there's no need for that ministry to be authenticated. We have the Bible. And so, I don't think it's necessary. Now, if somebody says to me that the gospel is being taken by some foreign missionaries to a place that has no exposure to Christianity, and somebody received the gift of tongues, and they were speaking in their language, would I be shocked or scandalized by that? And they told me that happened. I'd say, no, praise God. God can do that. But I don't think that it is normative in the life of the church anymore, especially in the West 
because it is not necessary because the ministry of the apostles has ceased. And let me also just say to any Pentecostal and charismatic friends that I have conversations with or that might be here today, is that even they, the vast majority of them, at least are cessationists on some level because even they, at least the level-headed ones, also believe that at least some of the gifts have ceased. They would believe that certainly apostleship has ceased. So even your average charismatic or your average Pentecostal person in an Assembly of God church would agree that there are no more apostles. We're not talking about those goofballs on TBN that call themselves apostles. Those, those people are goofballs. They're in a whole other category. I mean, that's not, they're, they're, so, they're so off-theological you can't even pin them down. They just kind of whatever. That's not who I'm talking about. If anybody calls himself an apostle, don't walk away, run away. They don't have no idea what they're talking about. There are no more apostles. But, but good, theological, uh, doctrinally-minded, Pentecostal, charismatic brothers and sisters would also agree that at least some of the gifts or the office of apostleship has ceased. And so I think on some level, we're all kind of cessationists on some level. It's just a matter of to what degree. My experience is, is that what happens in modern-day Pentecostalism, um, whatever it is, it's often well-meaning and earnest, and it's large-hearted. It's, 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 um, it, it wants the most of God, but I, find, I have found it to be more learned behavior than actually what is actually going on in the Bible. And um, at best, I think it's just uh, a kind of uh, sincere um, expression of worship. At worst, I think it can drift people off into a really, really unbiblical understanding of just the sufficiency of the Bible. Um, And that's my big concern uh, over the years as I've just learned more about the Bible is that Pentecostalism, charismatic, unwittingly, Circles unwittingly, un, they, 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 they unwittingly bring personal experience, which is very um, subjective, uh, unwittingly on par with the authority of Scripture, which can be very dangerous in the life of a Christian, I believe. Um, what about tongues? Um, because in the New Testament, uh, in the book of Acts, um, what I just mentioned, what's going on there in, in the book of Acts? I don't think that what's going on in the book of Acts is a pattern for personal experience. I think what's going on in the book of Acts is that God is using the gift of tongues to authenticate the moving of the gospel across ethnic barriers. And so, in a sense, Acts chapter 2 is all Jewish believers. It's all Jews. The baptism of the Holy Spirit falls on them. This prophecy that Joel talked about, he, you know, we can see this. It's happening to us. But still, these Jews were very inclusive. But then they see the gospel falling on the Samaritans and the Samaritan believes. And to make sure that the Jews understood, that the, to, make, to make sure God wanted to make sure that these Jewish apostles knew that the gospel is for the Samaritans, so he think he recreated that experience in Acts chapter 8 with the Samaritans. And he recreates that Jewish Pentecost for the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 to assure Peter and John and the other apostles that this is not just for you Jews, it's for the Gentiles. And he recreates that experience in Acts chapter 19 with the Ephesians, these Greeks, to show Paul that, yes, this gospel is for these Gentiles, these Greeks. So I think what's going on is not a pattern for personal experience, but a proof 
to Jewish Christians that the gospel is for the Samaritans, the Gentiles, the Greeks, the Ephesians. That's, what, that's why there seems to be this gap here between you know, salvation and tongues and all that that's going on in the book of Acts. That's my view. Um, I also wanted to say about tongues is that I think, and this is a debate, and I, and I, I don't think this is an airtight case, but um, I think that it, you have tongues show up in Acts, and you have tongues show up in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. Clearly what's going on in Acts is these are known human languages that are then being interpreted by, or heard by somebody else. But in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, there seems to be at times the possibility that when Paul is talking about tongues, he's not talking about a known human language, but some sort of heavenly language that might not be discernible to any human ear. That's a huge debate. I think the better understanding of what's going on in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 is that the gift of tongues is known human languages even there, although that's not, and I must admit, that's not an airtight case. Um, that's, that's a little bit more of a, of a nuanced discussion that would take us more time to handle. But still, even if tongues were a kind of personal prayer language, a kind of personal heavenly prayer language that Paul is regulating in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, um, I do think it is a gift that would cease with the ministry of the apostles and the giving of the scriptures. That would be my general view. Okay, some encouragements for us as members of Crosspoint. How can I discover and cultivate my gifts? Um, I don't think that spiritual gift inventories, which were very in vogue back in the last 10 or 15 years, are, I don't think they can be particularly helpful because none of us take those tests honestly. And I think it's, a, it's, it's something that's kind of uniquely American. How can I find my gift? There's just a lot of I in there. I think Christians before the American publishing industry never asked that question, how can I discover my personal gifts? I think they just lived life together and they just served one another. I want to say pastorally and gently that I think we suffer from a culture of, of subconscious self-focus. And I don't think that's the way Christians have operated in spiritual gifts. I think they just sort of love each other. They serve each other. They immerse themselves. And the Spirit works in them. And they find fruitful ways that they can bless other people. And I think that one way that we can discover and cultivate our gifts is just to go about serving, loving, being with people, encouraging one another. And these things will start to flourish in good-led, gospel-centered communities. And then finally, I just want to say that we should have, even in this room, I'm certainly there's different views, and we should have generosity for people that have different views on these things. This is certainly a second-order theological issue. Um, we should have a, a generosity for different personality types and different levels of maturity, all of which I think factor into a person's view on this. Okay, I've talked too much. Questions about spiritual gifts, tongues, anything? Anybody have any thoughts? Okay, go to the microphones because we're, we're, we want to make sure everybody can hear this. Carolyn from Indio, California. Um, one point from that book that you had me get by, is it Tom Schreiner yeah, Tom on Schreiner. spiritual gifts? Yeah, yeah. Um, some of you may know I just spent a year teaching Acts. Yes, that book, that's great. Yeah. He made a point that was excellent on Acts chapter 8 mm -hmm. that in dealing with the Samaritans mm -hmm. was that it was not only... 
evidence for the Jews. Mm -hmm. It was also evidence for the Samaritans. Yeah. Because they did not receive, because they sent Peter and John down there because the gift of the Holy Spirit had not fallen on them. Mm -hmm. And they prayed for them and they did. And it's assumed that they spoke in tongues because how else could they understand yeah. or see that? Yeah. But it was important because the Samaritans had split off. And if yep. we go back to John 4, where Jesus is having the conversation with the Samaritan, Samaritan woman, woman. Yeah. she says, well, we're on Mount Gerizim, yeah. and they had their own, their own temple going, their mm -hmm. own service. Mm -hmm. It was vitally important mm -hmm. as Jesus is building his church mm -hmm. that they be united mm -hmm. and that the Samaritans then didn't go off and start their own sect. Yes. So it point. was evidence not only for the Jews, but, but also, also for the Samaritans, it was vital for the Samaritans to come under the authority mm -hmm. of the apostles' leadership. Amen. That's a great point, Carolyn. And this is the book that Carolyn's referring to, Spiritual Gifts by Tom Schreiner. He's a wonderful professor at um, uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I, I love Schreiner. He's probably one of my favorite modern-day theologians, and I love him because he's willing to change his mind. He used to be a charismatic. He changed his mind into cessationism. He wrote a magnum opus, wonderful commentary on Romans, and he changed his mind on Romans chapter 7, and he rewrote the commentary and issued it again. So, you know, somebody that, of his acclaim that can say, hey, I might have been wrong. And that's, that's uh, so. Any other questions, comments? Yes, Melissa. Do you think that um, in chapter 19 that the, um, when he, goes to when Paul goes to Ephesus that those believers they probably weren't even believers yet yeah they had been baptized with the baptism of John but mm -hmm. had not heard of Jesus's death mm -hmm. and resurrection and mm -hmm. I don't know so it's not yep. like it was a second yep. you know right. came on them like a, a second thing yeah but maybe it was their first time yep. believing. I think so yeah I think maybe. so yeah and we're just seeing you know this uh, the New Testament a lot of times you got to be careful because it's descriptive more than prescriptive because it's a narrative of the movement of the gospel. And I do think you're right because he talks about the baptism of John, which I think is just a baptism of repentance. It's not the full gospel of Jesus. That's a great point, Melissa. Yeah, Joseph. Yeah, I think uh, there's some confusion with some people uh, between the conversation of like baptism of the spirit and spiritual gifts mm -hmm. and the language of being filled with the yes, spirit that's a great point. Yeah. and grieving the spirit. Yes. yes. And I think on one side, sometimes people confuse that with mm -hmm. a special gift or something like that. Mm -hmm. On the other side, I can see some people saying, Oh, I'm saved. So I have the spirit. So kind of, that's, that's yes. the end of it. Yes. Can you kind of flush out that other category kind yes. of that Paul's talking yeah. about? That's a great point. Thank you for that, Joseph. Um, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is going to use the language of being filled with um, the Spirit. And I don't have my old Bible. This is kind of my new Bible, so I could sort of geographically locate it on the page. But um, here it is. I'll start reading in verse 17, Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And um, so I would say that that is a wonderful exhortation for people that are already filled with the Spirit. I think what Paul is saying there is continue to drink, continue to grow as a Christian. It's not that you need to be rebaptized every day in the Spirit. 
I don't think that Paul is saying there that you need to experience this second experience of grace because actually the more literal translation would be be continually, keep being filled by the Holy Spirit. So I think that's just a Pauline way of saying, man, give yourself, dip yourself metaphorically into the Lord, grow in Him, grow in the Spirit, drink from the water of life day after day after day. And that's a wonderful exhortation because... You know, people that might be more cessationists, and I'm going to assume that maybe a lot of you are, that are in the Reform, we've got the Bible, we've got good doctrine, there can be a kind of spiritual laziness that takes a hold of us, where we don't grow, we don't, you know, we don't, come on, get, get, like grow, like get after it. And that's where I think sometimes our charismatic brothers and sisters really kind of, um, uh, you know, I think rightly sort of want to exhort us. I don't know if that's what you were getting at, but I think that's a wonderful point that I don't want to say by cessationism that it's a kind of laissez-faire Christianity by any stretch of the imagination. Um, yeah, absolutely. Great point. Great point. And, but, 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 you know, if we're going to critique the charismatics for being a little goofy, I think we should critique ourselves for sometimes being a little, a little, a little, a little wooden. Yeah. I mean, come on, stir up the gift of God within you by the link. I mean, come on, like we, we now, now, but here's the other thing I want to say too. I realize that I'm excitable. I'm half Italian. My dad was a football coach. I get going. And that's just my personality. And certain personality types are not more godly than others. And people can be shy and withdrawn and introverted and be some of the most spiritually vibrant people in the world, Right? So let's not assign spirituality to a personality type. Let's be careful to do that. But yet, you know, maybe some of us need to pep it up a little bit. That's all I'm saying. There's a balance here. Any other, any other points? Questions? Yes. Yeah. Brad, first off, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah. Uh, I was at Cross Point three years ago for oh. about a year and a half. All right. Just got married. We ran straight back here. So Congratulations. What's this. your name? Uh, Jack. Jack. My wife and Brenda's up Jill? Jack and Jill. Okay. <laughs> Jack and Brenda, what's your last name? Shanna. Shanna. Where are you guys from? Uh, I'm from Arizona. My wife's from Colorado. You're from, you're from uh, Junior Varsity, California, and you're from Colorado. All right. Now, I'm just, I, couldn't, I couldn't resist. I'm sorry. No, what are you doing, are you doing at Benning? Uh, I'm at Triple C, Oh, sir. Triple C. All right. Awesome. Glad to have you guys back. Yeah, Thanks for thank your kind you. words. Yeah. So if I'm understanding you correctly, mm -hmm. we're basing the gifts... Uh, off ceasism? Uh, cessationism, yeah, yeah. Ceased, yeah. Uh, because the apostles ha are, are no longer in existence, right? right. And my understanding of apostles are the people who the Lord used to write down his written words yes. later yes. through the canonization of the Bible. Yes. And it's very clear, right? Yes. Yes. It stops in Revelation, yeah. so yeah. we're good there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's hard to say yep. there's some kind of apostle. Right. And because of that, we have this word. Uh -huh. And so theoretically, right, if we are given these spiritual gifts, if it is in alignment with the word, which is from the apostles, yeah. is it still in line? And I guess it's kind of stemming from the end of 1 Corinthians 12, where mm -hmm. Paul is saying, yep. earnestly desire that, these gifts. And he yep. even ranks them. Mm -hmm. And so he says the higher gifts, and then kind of doubles down in verse 14, where mm -hmm. again he says, Mm -hmm. earnestly desire prophecy over tongues because mm -hmm. tongues is for edifying yourself. Prophecy is for edifying the church. Mm -hmm. So if 
I am trying to use this word as his ultimate authority. Yep. How do we grapple with Paul's claim of, you know, believers earnestly desiring these gifts? Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, is that I think we need to look at the different purposes in the way the Bible works. The Bible is not necessarily prescriptive in all that it says. It is often describing, and I think that's what's happening in 1 Corinthians, it's a descriptive narrative of the work of redemption in that particular time in the life of the church. But you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So we see Paul's regulation of the spiritual abuses in Corinth, and if that's all, if that's all the Bible said about gifts, then I would say if all we had was 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, then I would say we all would need to do exactly as Paul says. But we need to couple that with Hebrews chapter 2, and the, uh, the, the, where he talks about that the, these gifts were for the, the authentication to prove what's going on in the ministry of the apostles. And then, and this is a secondary argument, okay, this is a secondary argument. And this is where I don't think you can make an airtight case for cessationism or continuationism. But we do see in the early church a significant drop-off in the, um, the regularity of the gifts and in the early church fathers even talking about the gifts. And I think that's significant. So we piece that together with what Hebrews is saying, what Acts is saying about gifts, and that helps us shed light on the purposes of Paul's exhortation in 1 Corinthians as maybe seeing, being something contextual and not, not you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, uh, eternal. And we say, okay, this is... Pro-. Now, again, I want to admit that's not an airtight case. That's not an airtight case. And again, I would say I'm a nuanced cessationism. Cessationist, I don't think that... It, I don't think like this God has like closed the book in this chapter. I'm just saying it just seems like God is not, that's not the normal way that God works. I think, I think, I think I would say that. I want to circle back though. Does that kind of help understand? So I want to circle back on the word apostles though. Sometimes when you're reading in Acts or in the New Testament or a few other places, you'll actually hear other people referred to as apostles. And that word is often used not talking about the office of apostles, the 12 plus Paul, plus Barnabas, but as the role, a role, like an emissary, somebody that, so the word apostle really means just sent ones. And so oftentimes somebody will be an apostle of the church just bringing, um, you know, something to another church. So we need to distinguish that, that that word is often used, but the office of apostles have, have ceased. So if somebody says, for example, that they have an apostolic-like gift I'm okay with that language today if that means that they are kind of like a, a person who's taking the gospel to places in a way, but they're not claiming a kind of apostolic authority. But you bring up a good point, and I think the point is, is that this, this is inference. This is what Presbyterians would call in the Westminster Confession of Faith, good and necessary inference. It's not an airtight case, Okay. Now, they use that for baptism, which I think they're wrong. But anyway, the point, the point is, is that good and necessary inference, and I think, that's a, I think we need to humble ourselves and say that's the case. Yeah. Yeah, Chris, good question. I actually had and I'm sorry written. about making fun of Arizona. I love Arizona. I had several written down, but you actually just answered my one on yeah. the apostolic ministry, so yeah. you read my mind on that yeah. one. <laughs> um, just um, if you want to touch on, I've seen this trend, and even in 
Baptist circles, even in some of our circles, mm-hmm. um, about this trend of having a private prayer language. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I kind of touched on there is I think that Paul, um, several times in like 1 Corinthians 13, where he says, if I speak in the, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a, or a clanging cymbal. So the thought, some people would say, well, what's the tongue of angels? Um, I think Paul could just be talking sort of hyperbolically. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's speaking about a personal private prayer language, which some people have interpreted that way. Um, he might just, be, again, be speaking hyperbolically. And then there are a few places in 1 Corinthians 14 where, and I don't have them marked in this newer Bible, um, but it seems like Paul, uh, when he speaks about the gift of tongues, it seems like maybe he's referring to something that just builds up the individual. And so how could what just builds up the individual be similar to what's going on in the book of Acts? like a foreign language, it, it seems like Paul might be implying a kind of personal nature of that tongue for personal edification. Now, that's not an airtight case to say that this is a heavenly language because some commentators think that Paul may actually sarcastically be referring to people who think they have the gift of tongues, meaning a foreign language, that they're just kind of building themselves up because that was part of the problem in Corinth. It was kind of like a, hey, look at me. I've got this gift. And what he's saying is, is because this was attached, I think the implication is because this was attached to the early part of the church, people that had that foreign language gift might want to sort of puff themselves up. So all they're doing, he's sarcastically saying, all you're doing is building yourself up. Okay, that's one way of looking at that. Although another way of looking at that is that maybe it's this private prayer language where all you, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't think it's airtight either way. I think the better arguments are that it's a known human language, language, but that's not an airtight case, similar to um, what Jack was talking about. It's not an airtight case, and that's kind of up for debate. And I could um, throw some thick books at you if you want to spend a week reading about the differing views on that. Um, I personally think it's known human languages, but I could be wrong. Could be wrong. Yeah. Did that answer your question, Chris? Yeah. All right, any other questions? I know we're going long. I want to wrap this up, and I want to lose half of you. Okay, let me pray, and, um, and then Laura Susan and Mark, you're going to sing one more song for us? Let's do that. Why don't you guys make yourself your way back up and sing, and I'll pray. Um, Lord, uh, th- these are important things, but they are not essential things. But what is essential is that we love you with all of our heart, soul, and mind, so help us do that better. Um, Lord, we, we, regardless of where we fall on this, we, we want all of you, and um, we want to be Bible-centered people, uh, but we don't want to miss anything that is for us. Uh, but Lord, we also, we also want to just have a wonderful faith in the regular means of grace. The Word is powerful, and gathering is powerful, and you gift your people. So stir us up to love and good deeds, and uh, as we sing... Uh, this final song. Uh, Be with us and encourage us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.